You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, so this is part two of Risk, and we're going to be in Acts chapter one. Let me just give the context. If you remember, Jesus has been sent by the Father to earth. He is strapped on human flesh. He has dwelt among us. And here's what the New Testament teaches us about Jesus. He perfectly fulfilled every last command of God. The commands that you could not fulfill, Jesus fulfilled on your behalf. He lived the life that you couldn't but should have lived. And then if you know the storyline of the New Testament, Jesus eventually found himself on a cross. And it was there on the cross in our place where all of God's wrath came crashing down on him. All of that pent up wrath over our sin, your sin, my sin came cr- you know, crashing down on. And Isaiah says, crushing God the Son. On the cross it says that God the Father literally forsook God the Son. In, in our place, taking the brunt of our sin, the wrath for our sin. Um, he, he died on the cross. And if you know the storyline of the Bible, the end of the gospel show us that, that Jesus died, buried in a tomb on the third day, was raised from the dead. He came back to life. And Acts chapter 1 verse 3 says, The resurrected Jesus spent 40 days with his disciples, teaching them about the kingdom of God teaching them what they needed to know to live as faithful witnesses of God. And then you get to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and you find the last words of Jesus, the parting words of Jesus. Now linger over that for a minute. Anytime you get the last words of somebody, especially when they've had time to think about it, typically those are packed with significance and meaning. These are the last words of Jesus, the last thing he wanted to leave lingering in the hearts of his disciples. And you see it in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power... When the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, I want to tease out three things from that verse about what it means to live as a witness. And by the way, there's spaces for you on page 40, let me find it, 45 for sermon notes. 45, so if you want to flip there, there's space for you right there to be able to take notes. I want to tease out three things from Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Three things about what it means to be a witness for Jesus. Number one, witness as our new identity. This passage shows us that the Lord has bestowed upon us a new identity, and that identity is one of a witness. Now comes the question of what is a witness? When we say witness, what does that mean? Let me just give you a simple kind of working definition. A witness is a person living with the intentional purpose of pointing others to Jesus. That's what a witness is. A person living with the intentional purpose of pointing other people to Jesus. Now, if you think about, you know, the... Even the book of Acts, it shows us that that identity has been driven down into the followers of Jesus. In Acts chapter 12 and 13, you have the church in Antioch. And this was the first time in Antioch that followers of Jesus were actually named Christians. The the, the people around, the followers of Jesus looked at them and said they are so modeling Jesus Like they're so pointing us to Jesus in the way they do their life and what they say and how they live that we're just going to call them Christians. Now Christian means a little Christ. We know they follow Jesus and they're being little Jesuses in everything they do. They were so intentional in pointing others to Jesus that they were called Christians. So this might be a helpful way to think about what a witness is. A witness is a little Jesus doing everything possible to point people to the big Jesus that we know and love. That's what a witness is. 
A witness is a little Jesus doing everything within their power, everything possible to point people to the big Jesus that we know and love and want them to know and love. Now, it's important that you see in Acts 1, uh, verse 8, that Jesus didn't look at his disciples and say, hey, the Holy Spirit's going to come and make some of you witnesses. That they're really like, you know, the cream of the crop, you're going to be the witnesses. It's going to be for the elites of you. He doesn't say that. He says it's going to be you all, every one of you, the Spirit is going to to come inside of and reside in and empower you to be witnesses. He's saying this is what you are. If you're a Christian, if you're a son or daughter of God, this is not just something you do in your life. This is what God has made you. This is what the Spirit of God is making you into. You are a witness. Or in Paul's language in 2 Corinthians 5, you're ambassadors of Jesus. Or in John 17, Jesus says, you're sent ones. This is, this is who you are as a Christian, who you are as an adopted son or daughter of God. This is why Charles Spurgeon, the old Baptist preacher, said this. He said, Christian, here's your options. You're either a missionary or an imposter. And the reason he's saying that is because when God saves a person, he sends them. He makes them a witness, an ambassador, a sent one. So witness is our identity. This is who we are deep down at the core level in Jesus. Now that identity has a way of working itself into a few actions. So so when we're a witness, it has a way of spilling out into our lives and what we do. And the book of Acts shows us the two primary characteristics of a witness. The two primary things that they are about. This is the way they go about pointing others to Jesus. Number one, there's two of these. Two ways we go about doing this. A witness declares the gospel. So so gospel declaration is what happens with our lips through words. So if we're going to be a witness, this is who we are. If we're going to actually live out that identity, it means that we have to talk about Jesus. You see this in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, 3,000 people get saved. I mean, a revival breaks out in Jerusalem. 3,000 people on one day. Now, how did that happen? That happened when a group of people were assembled. Peter gets up and speaks to that group of people, and he talks about Jesus. At the end of that, they look at him and say, what, Peter, what do we do then? In light of what you just said, he says, repent and be baptized, and you're going to be saved. You're going to be rescued by Jesus. And they do that. But I want you to see the point here. That happened through preaching. That happened through someone talking about Jesus, using their mouth and talking, saying something about what Jesus has done for them. So let's just tie this up. Here's the point of that. Being a witness for Jesus requires talking about Jesus. If we're going to be a faithful witness to Jesus, it means we have to talk about Jesus. There just isn't any other way around it. I want there to be another way around it. There's a lot of times when I'm like, God, can people just like catch Jesus like a cold? Can it work like that? Can we go that? But that's, that's not the way God has ordained it. God has ordained that men and women just like you and me, many of us fearful, timid, weak, frail, people just like you and me will open our mouths, talk about Jesus. God enters into that moment and rescues them. That's the way that God has seen fit to to do this thing. So part of what it means to be a faithful witness is that we declare the gospel with our lips. The second thing a witness does, though, is they demonstrate the gospel with their lives. So it's gospel declaration, that's with our lips. Gospel demonstration, that's with our lives. So let me just say it this way. The way you live really does matter. It really matters. 
Like the, the, the way you live, the way you operate, the way, the way you interact with your spouse, the, the quality of your marriage, the way you would practice forgiveness, the way you do generosity in your life, the, the way you forgive, the way you don't grumble and complain and gossip, all of those things matter. They, they, they profoundly matter. Do you remember the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5? He's looking at a group of people and he says, let your light shine before people. Now, why would, why would we do that, Jesus? But why, why would we let our light shine before people? So that they may see your good deeds. And do you remember the last phrase? He doesn't say, so then people would just applaud your good deeds. It's not that. He says, so people would see your good deeds and somehow through your good deeds, their eyes would be lifted up to God who sustains and motivates and fuels those good deeds. I mean, this is why your life matters so much and my life matters so much. The way we live is meant to be a window for people. And people would see through the window of our, of our lives, gospel demonstration. They would see through the window of our lives. And through the window of our lives, their, their view would be lifted up to the God who fuels and sustains that. Your life really, really, really matters. Reading through Acts this year, I saw something that I had never seen before. In Acts chapter 12, Barnabas, he goes down to the church in Antioch. And when he gets there, there's good things happening. So the church sent him down from Jerusalem. They sent him down to Antioch to see what was going on. He gets there. He walks into the church and among the people. And Barnabas says, I saw the grace of God. I didn't just hear someone talking about the grace of God. I saw the grace of God. How did he see the grace of God? He looked around into the lives of people and their lives were demonstrating the gospel to such a degree that he could see through their lives all the way to the grace of God behind their lives. This, by God's grace, is what our lives are meant to be. So we're meant to be witnesses. That's our identity. That comes out in both gospel declaration. That's our lips. And gospel demonstration. That's our lives. This is who God has made you. If you're a son or daughter of God, you are a witness. Now here comes point two. The reach of our witness. The reach of our witness. This passage helps us see the scope of our witness, the reach of our witness. Look at Acts 1.8 again. He says, okay, you're going to be my witnesses. The Holy Spirit's going to come in you, empower you. You're going to be my witnesses. And then he shows us that the scope or, or the, the, the reach of that witness. He says that witness is going to reach from Jerusalem all the way into Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It's really familiar to Jesus' last words in the Gospel of Matthew when he says, you're going to go and make disciples of what? All nations, right? All nations is both Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It covers all of those things. So really what Acts 1.8 and Matthew chapter 28 are showing us is that the reach of our witness goes from our neighborhood, kind of our local place, all the way to the nations, that's the reach of the witness. It covers that whole span from our neighborhood to the nations. So let's start with the nations. Our witnessing work goes all the way to the nations. Now, when you think about that word nation, it would be natural for us to think about that word like this. We have the United States, a nation. We have China, a nation. Mexico, a nation. Canada, a nation. But that is not the way the Bible thinks about nation or Jesus thinks about nation when he uses that word in Matthew chapter 28. That's not the way he's thinking about it. The Greek word translated nation in, in Matthew 28 is the word ethnos. It's where we get our word ethnicities. So when Jesus is saying, 
Go and make disciples of all nations or to the ends of the earth. Go all the way out there to make, you know, disciples. He's not saying go to every country. He's not saying make sure you get to China, make sure you get to, you know, Japan, make sure you get. He's not just saying go to every country. He's saying go to every ethnicity, every tongue or people or tribe. Or you might think of it this way. I think this might be the best way to translate the word nation is go to every people group. Go to every people group. Now, what is a people group? A people group or, or an ethnicity, a people, tongue, or tribe, a people group is a group of people that if you drop the gospel into that group of people, it's going to spread until it hits a natural barrier. Maybe it's a linguistic barrier. Maybe it's a geographical barrier. Maybe it's a cultural barrier. Maybe it's some governmental barrier. But it's going to spread until it hits that barrier. And whenever the gospel spread stops because of one of those barriers, what is inside of that group is the people group. So it's the group of people that you drop the gospel and it spreads until it hits the barrier. Whatever that, that, that group is inside of that barrier, then is your people group. Okay, that, when, when he is saying the word nations, you've got to go and make disciples of all nations. He's saying, we've got to go and we've got to make disciples of every one of those people groups. Now comes the question of how many people groups are there in the world? Answer. You can go to the Joshua Project and see these things, but the, here's the current answer to that question as of last night. There is 16,547 people groups. Now that number is a fluid number. It, it goes up sometimes. We discover new people groups. It goes down sometimes. Sometimes we realize that the barrier we thought existed between two groups of people actually doesn't exist. And the gospel can get across that barrier. So it, it, it's a fluid number, but that will get you pretty close. 16,547. So when, when John in Revelation 7 is, is looking at 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 the throne, looking at heaven, and he's seeing a great multitude assembled of every nation, tongue, and tribe all around the throne singing to Jesus, palm branches in hand. That moment's going down. When he's seeing that, he's not just seeing people from America, from China, from Mexico, from Canada. That's not what he's seeing. He is seeing people from every one of those people groups on the planet, all 16,547 of them. That's what he is seeing in Revelation 7. That's what heaven is going to be full of, is people from every one of those people groups. Now comes the question of how many of those people groups are unreached? An unreached people group is a group of people, one of those, one of those groups, gospel comes into it, it, it expands until it hits a boundary, that, that group of people. An unreached people group is a group of people that has less than 2% followers of Jesus. So there's no indigenous community of, of followers of Jesus in that people group. There is no church in that people group. KLTY is not playing on the radio. Chuck Swindoll is not preaching on a Sunday morning in that, that people group, right? How many, that's an unreached people group. How many unreached people groups are there across the planet? Answer, 6,693 unreached people groups. Now just think about that for a minute. Within massive groups of people, ma these massive people groups, th these people groups can be, the biggest one is 136 million people. Okay, so we are talking massive amounts of people. W within these people groups, people just like this, little boys grow up, they marry, they have kiddos, they become grandparents, and they die, and they never hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now think about that. They do everything you're doing in your life. All the things kind of make life go. And yet they never, they never 
hear that Jesus has lived for them and died for them, risen from the dead on the third day so that they could know God. They never hear that. 6,693 people groups where that is the reality of those living in that group. I mean, just think about this. 86% of the world's Hindus, Muslims, and Buddhists do not know a Christian personally. 80, virtually 9 out of 10 Hindus, Muslims, and Buddhists do not know a Christian. Think about the world population. The world population is roughly 7.4 billion people. Yeah, the, what I saw last night said 7.38, so just right at that 7.4 billion mark. How many, how many people do you think live across the world in unreached people groups? So these people groups with less than 2%, you know, Christian population, no indigenous sort of churches, you know, that, how many people of the 7.4 billion live in those sort of unreached people groups? 3.11 billion people, billion. 42% of the world's population that's alive right now is in unreached people groups. Ne they're going to live their entire life and never hear the good news of Jesus. So in light of that, let me just apply it this way. With that in mind, and in light of Acts 1-8, Matthew chapter 28, I think it's a matter of Christian obedience, obedience to Jesus and the situation of the world that every single Christian ought to ask. And I just want to encourage you to ask this this morning. God, would you have me and or my family uproot where we are, move our lives into an unreached area so that people don't spend their whole lives never hearing about Jesus? I, I just want to encourage you to ask that. In light of what we're reading here, in light of the world situation, might God be asking you to do that? I think it's a matter of Christian obedience that we're honest to God and ask God that question. God, would you want me to do that? Move, move into that. Would you want us to do that? A, a witness, the, the reach is all the way into the nations. That reach also goes into our neighborhoods, though. It spans from the nations way out there all the way down here to our neighborhoods, all the way into the current situation where you're, you're living right now. So is everyone in this room going to be called to go to an unreached area of the world? The answer to that is no. But before we just say no, can we just acknowledge some in here probably would be if we would listen this morning. God might actually be moving in some of us this morning to say uproot your life and go be a business guy over there. Go teach school over there. Go do what you're doing here. Go do that over there. God might actually do that. But is he going to do that for every one of us in the room? No, he's not. So when you distill that down, here's what we can uh, how we could summarize it. Being a witness is not primarily an issue of location. It's primarily an issue of your primary occupation. Like, like, it's not an issue of where you are, but what you're doing where you are. It's not an issue of like, do you live here? But it's why do you live there? It's not, it, being a witness is not an issue of place as much as it's an issue of purpose. Like, why are you where you are? But why are you there? I mean, think about your life right now, the things that make up your life. Why does God have you in the neighborhood you're in, the school you're in, the workplace you're in, the family you're in, with your particular kids, with your particular parents? Why does God have you within your particular set of friends? Why does God have you, you know, your kid playing on that soccer team with those particular parents? Why is God arranging all of that? Why is all of that set up the way it is right now in your life? 
answer. It's so that you could be a witness right there where you are in your social networks, however God has ordained those be right now. That is the reason for all of those things, so that you can be a witness. Now, let me just press this down by, by using an analogy here. Think for a moment if you moved halfway across the country into an unreached people group. Think about how you would be thinking. Where, where are you going to, to live? Well, how are you going to answer that question? You're probably not going to answer that with, where can I find the best deal? You're probably not going to answer that with, where's, where can I maximize my comfort? You're probably not going to answer it like that. The way you're going to answer it is, where would be the best place for mission so that I could be a part of reaching this particular people that I'm here for? And then imagine the day that you leave for work. You get in your car or however you're going to get there, and you're on your way to work. What are you going to be thinking? You're going to be asking and begging God, God, would you please intersect my lives with people who need to hear about you today, people that are open. God, would you please give someone a dream, whatever it takes to make them open, and would you please intersect my life with them today so that we can talk? Think about the moment that you're going to be walking around your, your neighborhood or around your house, wherever you live, and you're just going, you're going to go out for a walk. What are you going to be thinking as you walk? God, would you please, would you please intersect my life with someone today? Would you just create a divine opportunity today to talk about you? Right? This is how you're going to be thinking. Now, let, let's just press this all the way into our current, our current area. Where your current mindset right now, living where you do right here in the Midlothian area, where your current mindset is different than the mindset that you would have among an unreached people group, wherever the difference is, that's the gap by God's grace that needs to close today. Wherever your mindset is different right now and how you're living than it would be if you uprooted your life, moved halfway across the world, and were, were giving your life to reach that group of people. Whatever the difference is between your mindset now and what it would be there, that is the gap by God's grace that has to close. That is the gap. If we're going to be a faithful witness that has to shrink, if we're going to be people who intentionally point others to Jesus, that has to close in your life and in my life. That's point two. Point three. So it's uh, witness as an identity. The, the reach of our witness and then point three, witness requires risk. Witness requires risk. Let's just bring this full circle here. So look back at Acts 1.8. It says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses. It's your identity. You're going to be my witnesses in, Jer in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now I want you just to, to look at two phrases here. Look at the first phrase, Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's going to come and he's going to reside in you. He's going to dwell in you. Now, there's many things the Holy Spirit does in your life and in my life, but can we just see from this passage that God has given us the precious gift of the Holy Spirit to make us faithful witnesses of his, to be people who would declare the gospel with our lips, demonstrate it with our lives. God has given you the Holy Spirit to make you a faithful witness. Now look at the other phrase here, we'll receive power. Do you see that there in Acts 1.8? Now ask, just ask yourself the question, why is it that a witness would need power from the Holy Spirit? Why, why would we need that from the Holy Spirit? And I think the answer that you see lived out in the book of Acts is we need power from the Holy Spirit because living as a witness is risky. It's costly. 
It's hard. It's not easy. That's the reason we need the Holy Spirit in us, empowering and fueling us. It's because it is risky to live as a witness. Now, I just want to tease out a few passages in uh, the book of Acts. I wish I could do more, but I'm just going to give you a couple of them really briefly. In Acts chapter 2, let me just just tie together risk and our witness. And I want you to see how risky it is to live as a witness of Jesus. In Acts chapter 2, Peter stands up in front of a crowd. We talked about this a moment ago. He preaches to this massive crowd. People respond back to him and say, Peter, what do we need to do? He tells them and they get saved right there. 3,000 people in Acts 2 get saved by Jesus. It's going great in Acts chapter 2. Then you get to Acts chapter 3. Peter stands up, big crowd again. He preaches to the big crowd, and it's an incredible response. 5,000 men get saved. I mean, in two chapters in Jerusalem, you've got 3,000 in in chapter 2. You've got 5,000 men, women and children. You've got a lot more in in Acts chapter 3. Revival is breaking out in Jerusalem. But a part of that crowd was not so pleased with Peter. Started to stir up trouble for Peter. They stirred up the crowd against Peter in Acts chapter 4. And Peter and John get arrested and thrown in prison. Welcome to risk. If you want to live as a witness of Jesus, you're going to expose yourself to the possibility of loss or injury. That's risk. It's a risky action. You're you're exposing yourself to to things like this, to prison. Uh, You go to Acts chapter 6. The followers followers of Jesus are multiplying in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 6. And uh, you've got Stephen who's doing great work and, and God is using him to multiply believers in Acts you know, chapter 6. And then all of a sudden, a, a group of people within the crowd stir up the crowd against Stephen. They falsely accuse Stephen. They arrange this mockery of a trial where they're falsely accusing him. P, uh, Stephen, he stands up in, in this false accusation moment, this trial, and he spends Acts 7 just laying down the lumber. I mean, he just goes at it. He, he walks them all the way back from the Old Testament about how Jesus is the fulfillment of all that we've seen and heard. He talks to them about Jesus. But in Acts chapter 7, they don't respond like they do in Acts chapter 2. It's not the way it goes. In Acts chapter 7, verse 54, it says, When they heard these things from Stephen, they were enraged at Stephen, and they ground their teeth at him. They grabbed Stephen, they jerked him outside of the city, and they put him in a pit, and they threw stones at him until they beat the life out of Stephen. Welcome to risk. Being a witness for Jesus is going to expose you to the possibility of loss or injury. In Acts chapter 8, systematic persecution breaks out all throughout Jerusalem. So now if you are a witness of Jesus, there is a bullseye on your back. It's risk. You're exposing yourself to the possibility of loss or injury. In Acts chapter 12, James is martyred because he's a witness of Jesus. There's your risk. It's exposing you to the possibility of loss or injury. In Acts chapter 14, one of my favorite little sections of Acts, Paul and Barnabas, they go into Lystra, and they heal this crippled man. And the crowd looks at, in fact, they just healed this man. And then they look at, at, at Barnabas and Paul, and they're like, Barnabas and Paul, they're gods. They start calling one Zeus and the other Hermes. And Paul and Barnabas, they throw themselves into the crowd, trying to convince the crowd that they're not gods. And then part of the crowd turns on Paul and Barnabas, and they grab Paul, they get stones, and they stone Paul to the point where they are all convinced that he is dead. Now, these people are experienced stone throwers, right? Typically, you don't fool them. 
Like they know when a person's dead. They leave him for dead. They, they drag his carcass outside of the city. They leave his body. They, they think he's dead. They leave him out, you know, outside of the city for, uh, for dead. All of a sudden, some, some disciples, they surround uh, Paul outside the city. And as they're surrounding him praying, Paul stands up. He just, he just stands up. And it says he, the next day he goes into another city. He preaches Jesus in that city. Some people get saved and elders get appointed for the church. It's just like welcome to risk. Being a faithful witness of Jesus means you are going to expose yourself to the possibility of loss or injury. Here's the point I want you to see in this. The good news of Jesus spreads through those willing to risk, never through those who are unwilling to risk. The gospel of Jesus Christ moves out through men and women willing to embrace risk. The New Testament church knew this. Stephen Nill, in his History of Christian Missions, he wrote this about the New Testament church. Undoubtedly, Christians under the Roman Empire had no legal right to existence, and they were liable to the utmost stringency of the law. Every Christian knew that sooner or later he might have to testify to his faith at the cost of his life. Might. There's your risk. Being a faithful witness of Jesus means you're going to expose yourself to the possibility of loss or injury. A few years ago, I read the autobiography of John Patton. If you've never read it, you ought to get the book and at some point over the next couple of years, read it. The autobiography of John Patton. He was born in Scotland in 1824. And at the age of 33, he and his pregnant wife decided they were going to leave Scotland, go to an unreached people in the New Hebrides Islands. So they're, they're going and they're going to be missionaries. They're going to, they're going to try to get the gospel out to the people on the, the New Hebrides Islands. Today that would be called Vanuatu. So, um, you know, they make the decision and then all of a sudden they have all this opposition in their own church. People in their own church are discouraging them from going. They don't want them to go. One guy in his autobiography, he says, Mr. Dixon was his name, stood up and screamed at John and said, there's cannibals on those islands and you're going to get eaten. Now, ironically, that was totally true. There was a great chance they were going to be eaten by cannibals on those islands. 19 years earlier, a group of missionaries had gone to those islands and they were eaten by cannibals on those islands. So so what he's saying is is very true. That could very well happen. John Patton responds to him like this. Mr. Dixon, you are well advanced in years now, and your own body is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or eaten by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. In November of that year, he and his pregnant wife, they arrive on the island of Tana, one of the New Hebrides Islands. And uh, that was in November. In the spring of that year, his wife has a newborn baby, have a little baby. And within the next month, both the wife and the baby die in the middle of nowhere. Now just feel that for a moment. I mean, it's one thing to embrace the possibility of of loss. It's one thing to embrace race like that. And that's a really remarkable thing to do that, to embrace it like that. It's a whole nother thing to actually embrace the loss. 
for, for God to actually walk you through the loss of that thing. And I, I wish I could give you what the next four years of his life looked like on that island. I mean, it's the craziest stories. It's, every, it's literally every day, it's this guy tried to spear me to death, but he missed. This guy tried to throw a knife at me, but he missed. This guy fired a musket at me, but somehow it didn't hit me. I mean, it's, every day is like that for him. Finally, four years later, he leaves the island because the threats were just too great. He couldn't stay there anymore. He, and he leaves uh, after four years. He goes for the next four years just to work in mission mobilization. He went down to Australia, mobilized a ton of missionaries down there. He got remarried in Australia. He and his next wife, they go back and spend the next 41 years on the island of Vanuatu, the New Hebrides Islands. And today, over 100 years after the death of John Patton, 91% of those that make up the New Hebrides Islands identify as Christians. Hear me on this. The gospel of Jesus Christ spreads through those willing to embrace risk. There is no other way. Now, do you know what's ironic for those of us who, most of which are going to say right here in your neighborhood in this local area. Do you know what's ironic? Our risk is not going to be us at the end of a spear, likely. It's not going to be us at the, you know, in a jail cell. Very unlikely. That's going to be our risk. Do you know what our risk is? Your cool reputation my cool reputation, our comfort. Can you imagine the day we stand before Jesus, how trivial those things are going to sound? How trivial. Man, that God would make us bold and courageous people. Let, let me end with three just really quick applications. Three quick applications. And our band can go ahead and come on up. And let me just end with three quick things here. As you're just thinking about how would we apply this, let me give you three ways. Number one. Pray for boldness. Pray for it. Ask God to make you bold. I mean, couldn't we all use that for God to make us a bold people? People willing to get over us and our little reputations and our cool value. That God would just make us bold people willing to talk about Jesus. For God to do that. Do you remember in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John just have gotten out of prison and what did they do in Acts 4? They gathered some, some disciples around them, some friends around them, and they prayed for boldness against all sorts of threats. I mean, what would it look like for you just to start gathering people in your little circle of friends and for y'all to pray, God, make us bold people. See, if you're bold yesterday, it doesn't automatically mean you're going to be bold tomorrow. And if you were fearful and timid yesterday, it doesn't mean you can't be bold tomorrow. By God's grace, let's pray for boldness that God would give us a backbone and some courage. Let's pray for that. Let's pray for boldness. Number two, let's listen to the Spirit. Years ago, I heard a person say this, and I just think it's so true. He said the number one key in personal evangelism is a cooperation with and sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. What would it look like for us to develop a posture where we're listening to God? Where we're praying, God, would you show me today who you'd want me to talk to? God, would you show me today? Would you lead me today to this person that is open to you? To that person that you're working in? God, would you please give me someone that I can encourage today? God, would you show me these people? God, would you lead me? Acts is just full of these sort of illustrations. Acts chapter 8, which you're going to be covering in your home group this week, is a great illustration of that. That The Spirit of God comes to Philip and says, go down that road. Philip goes down that road. Then he says, go to that person. He goes to that person. And as he goes to that person, he just happens to, to walk up on that person who is reading Isaiah. 
The prophet Isaiah, can you believe that? Seriously, you know God's up to something if you walk up to the guy reading Isaiah. And the guy looks at Peter, or, uh, Paul, or, uh, Philip and says, Philip, who's, he ta- who's Isaiah talking about? Jesus, someone, who's he talking about? Philip unpacks Jesus, the guy gets saved right there on the spot. And I'm just wondering, what would it look like for us to develop a posture that is aware of the working of the Holy Spirit? You know what the Holy Spirit would love to do for you this week? To lead you to someone that he's working in? To lead you to someone that's a not yet Christian? That's just waiting on the Christian to get there? The Spirit of God would love to do that. And here's the last one. Let's pray for boldness. Let's listen to the Spirit. And let's take risk. Let's take some risk. Like me and you, just simple people like me and you, let's take risk. Do, do you want to see God use your life and lips for the salvation of other people? I so desperately want to do, I want to see God do that. I want to see God use me for that. I want to see God use you for that. Here's the great news. You don't have to be some amazing Christian for God to do that. You don't have to have an airtight argument on why Jesus is this. You don't have to like know every answer you would ever be asked in a conversation about Jesus. Do you know the only thing you need to be willing to do if you want to see Jesus use your life for the salvation of other people? The only thing you need to be willing to do is embrace risk. Just to embrace risk. How do you know if God, what God might do when you initiate praying for a neighbor? How do you know what God might do when you gently enter into that conversation with a family member? How do you know what God might do when you get into that conversation with the person at your school, the person at your, your workplace, the person in your neighbor? How do you know what God's gonna do? The answer is you don't until you take a risk to find out. You don't until you do that. And may we be people willing to risk to find out what God might do, amen? May we be those sort of people. One of my favorite authors says it this way. If you live gladly to make others glad in God, this is what we're doing, isn't it? We wanna be glad in God and we wanna invite others to be glad in God, to enjoy God with us by the work of Jesus. We want to invite others into that. If you wanna live gladly to make others glad in God, your life will be hard, your risk will be high, but here's what makes it worth it. And your joy will be full. May that be true for us as a church family. Let's pray. I'm gonna give you just a moment to allow the spirit of God to press into you the things that would be most helpful this morning and wipe away those things that wouldn't be. And for some, you came in this morning, and the truth is you don't know Jesus yet. And here is the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is available to you this morning. God stands ready with arms wide open this morning because of the work of Jesus. He lived perfectly in your place. He died on the cross for your sin, risen from the dead on the third day, showing God's power over Satan's sin and death, so that anyone who would put their faith in Jesus trust and treasure Jesus could be reconciled to God. I I love how one of my favorite pastors says, he says, here's the gospel in a nutshell. We're all idiots. It's the humbling part. Part two, we have an incredibly bright future in Jesus. That's the great part. And number three, anyone can get in on this. 
And I just want you to know, if you came in this morning and you don't know Jesus, you can get in on the incredibly bright future God has for all of his sons and daughters. What does that require? It requires a turning from your sin and a throwing your life upon the finished work of Jesus. And if that's you, we're going to have some people over at the prayer table. We would love to just start that journey with you. We'd love to pray with you this morning, celebrate that with you this morning. And if that's you, you can take that card under your seat, fill out that black section, check that box, establishing a relationship with Jesus. Gosh, we would just love to take those first steps with you this morning. Now for the rest of us in the room, risk and our witness. What risk would God want you to take? What would it look like for you to be a person praying for boldness? sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit in your life and just willing to take every single risk that comes in front of you? What would it look like for you to begin to live with that intentional purpose of pointing other people to Jesus? Everywhere you go, everything you're doing, you're living with that mindset. That mindset is just infused into every single moment of your life. Oh God, would you show us that this morning? God, would you make us faithful witnesses to the power of your spirit? God, would you make us into a people who declare the good news of Jesus with our lips, demonstrate it with our lives? God, would you help us consider the question, would you, would you have us uproot our life, my family, for the sake of the unreached peoples of the world? God, would you help close the gap in my life between how I would be living somewhere else among an unreached people and how I'm living now? Oh God, would you help us? God, have your way within us. And it's your good name we ask that. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.